Ko te mehi tuatahi ki te atua, ko tō mātou kaihanga, ko te mehi tuarua ki a korua Clint and David, ko te mehi tuatoru ki a koutou katoa. Ko waiaho, ko wik te maunga, ko kutu wak te awa, nō ko tarania raua ko tia mana oku tupuna, ko Diana te waka, nō o tuatahi te kainga inai nei, ngā mehi a Ngāti Whiki, ko Ngāti Pākiha te iwi, ko te tiriti o Waitangi, tōku kawananta. Ko Armstrong Rawa ko Frauenstein, te whanau, ko Hana tōku ingoa, nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, yeah, mihi, mihi to this place. Thanks to Clint and David for asking me to do this. <laughs> Second time ever. Um, <laughs> you're in for a treat. And then who I am, where I've come from, from Germany, Germany and Scotland, and the, the treaty is the reason I can stand here in this land and bring, bring a word. As Clint mentioned, we are in our January sermon series, the, the Prayers of the Psalms. So the Psalms are the, the OG prayer book of the people of God. For thousands of years, the church has found herself in these words. They speak to the greatness and goodness of God, but they also show us that language doesn't fully get around that, that there is a space in between. You know how back when, back when smartphones and apps were new and fresh and cool, and we used to say, there's an app for that, for anything. <laughs> it's so true with the Psalms. Any emotional situation that you find yourself in, you can say, there's a Psalm for that. <laughs> there is so much goodness in this book of 150 Psalms. From everything, for, for lament, sorrow, anguish, for moments of praise and wonder and worship, and everything in between the Psalms give us language. Some are written, well, they're all written for different purposes. So we've got some that were written for lament, some that are written for corporate worship, as we heard last week in Psalm 24, and some in the style of the wisdom literature, so similar to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and that is the text that we are sitting in today, Psalm 37. Ultimately, the Psalms are a tool that train us in faithfulness through every emotion and situation. They train us in faithfulness to the, to the way of Christ and the goodness of God. Just imagine, if you will, if after the earthquake or after the mosque shootings in 2019, if we had a, a psalm to hold to as a, as a nation, as a community, a psalm that gave us language that would help us name and express that anger, the anguish, and the unknown. Psalms do this, they hold us and they give us context. In today's text, Psalm 37, it's one of these communal wisdom psalms to be read together in, in a gathered setting. It is an acrostic poem, so each section of the psalm begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this is a literary tool that conveys completeness. It is a full exploration of the writer's intent. We're only going to sit with the first four of the Hebrew letters today, the first seven verses. Um, but if you're feeling unfinished, go home and read the rest. <laughs> That's your challenge. Um, yeah, so this is a psalm from King David, and it's one of the last things that he wrote. So picture him. He's almost 70 years old. He's reclining at the city gates in Jerusalem. And this is the wisdom he lands on. This is the same David who tended the sheep with his sisters, who fought battle after battle for and with the Lord. The David that danced in someone else's undies. <laughs> the, <laughs> the one that, that murdered a man to get his wife the one who led the Israelites through some of their most formational years in the promised land. This is great King David, his final word. A man after God's own heart. 
Now he's old, and this, this is his wisdom. So let us read together this morning. (coughs) Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's Yatua, would you bless your word to us this morning? We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself in our context and in language. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen, amen. So here, here in his old age, David addresses one of the most pressing questions of our faith that rings loud today. Why do bad people keep succeeding? Why does evil keep succeeding? Where is the victory and the righteousness of God in the midst of our chaotic culture? And what do we do about it? What a word to go out on, David. That's a hard hitter. So if we look at this whole section, verses one and seven form bookends to this psalm, both calling us pretty explicitly to not fret about the evil that we see around us. The two middle sections call us internal, calling us to be still and to trust in the Lord, and that in turn, he will establish good fruit in our lives. So starting verse one, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. This envy that David speaks about, it's, it's not simply coveting. Coveting wants that, that European summer trip that your best friend from high school was posting about. <laughs> it craves that, it wants it. But envy, envy goes further, it is meaner. It wishes that they didn't get to experience it, it at all either. It's the difference that David draws on. So we see this envy play in us and around us all the time, especially here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where tall poppy syndrome is alive and well. Envy doesn't let you celebrate your co-worker's success or promotion because you see it, you believe it to be a threat to your own success, right? How about when, think back to when you were 18 or 19, fresh out of high school, You've just finished 13 years of structure and being told exactly what was expected of you and how to succeed. Turn up, do the mahi, get out of there. Or you're familiar with the structure of the social dynamics in high school. (laughs) High school is a hilarious microcosm of hormones and energy and relationships. There's so much going on. But when you're in, I see it so much at my work at school. But when you're in the midst of it, you know the language, you know what groups are what, you know who your people are. It is familiar, it is known, it is a, it is a codified system that you understand. And then you leave that system and the whole wide world can be very overwhelming. There's so many options of which path you could take, how you could live your life, what social groups you will fall into, how people relate to each other in different spaces. 
Unless you are one of those very special people that knew from age three that you wanted to be a doctor, you're probably very envious of those people, people who seem to have nailed their sense of calling and vocation. That seems attractive and is very envious. Especially in our, in our cultural moment of a prolonged adolescence, there's like lingering 20-something years, that calling of what do I want to do with my life, why am I here, as we change from course of study to course of study, as we start new job after new job, what am I doing with my life? We get so caught by the fear of choosing the wrong things. <laughs> this is an example. <laughs> so caught by that fear of choosing the wrong thing that we choose nothing at all, jumping around, and that envy of people who know what they're doing gets bigger and bigger. Or maybe you might be a young family, both parents balancing careers that are finally taking off and being successful while raising young people at home. Life is pretty frantic. You want your kids to be well-rounded, so you're taking them to sports and extracurricular activities. Saturday mornings are this huge logistical mess of getting to different sports across the city. You're just surviving in this rat race. Most of your parenting is simply reactive. That holiday and overseas escape to Rarotonga, for example, is looking really nice right now. Time to step away from the chaos and recenter and just escape it all. Except when you get there, you realize that all the chaos came with you. <laughs> the internal space is still a mess. Well, the hobby, time, time carved out for yourself to, to perfect a craft that is something just for you. Mountain biking, renovating the bathroom. Envy creeps in here at the when you look at the family next door who seems to have nailed the simple, peaceful life. That dad never gets angry when his kid takes a million years to get into the car seat. <laughs> You're watching them, waiting for them to crash so that you can feel better about your own situation. Or maybe, maybe you're older and your conversations with your peers revolve around the success of their kids. So-and-so's daughter is a surgeon. Someone else's son planted a church in Mozambique. But, <laughs> but, but your kid is our friend from earlier. <laughs> Jumping from job to job, doesn't know what they're doing. Sorry, Mum. <laughs> And in this phase, envy rears its head as that comparison between successful kids. So in this psalm, David holds this sin of envy before us. We've gotten pretty soft on sin in our culture in words like evil or wrongdoing or wicked schemes. They're pretty jarring. We don't, we don't really like them. We want it to be chill. But he doesn't. He, he doesn't let us just sit in that. He brings envy to mind. But you might be thinking, great analogies, Han, but these things, a sense of passion and calling, groundedness and family life, and producing well-rounded adult kids who are adding value to the world, that doesn't sound like wickedness or evil or wrongdoing. They actually sound pretty good, right? And this, this is the rub here, friends. If we are faithful to the word of God, especially when it's uncomfortable and doesn't seem to be what we want it to be, there is so much of Jesus and his response here for us today. So David graciously points out that the things that we envy, which is really just worldly success, will soon wither and die away like green plants. While they seem good and they might even echo pieces of the kingdom of God, 
if they are not centered on God and his faithfulness, then they are evil. And the scripture says that. Like that external escape of a holiday. A trip to Raro itself is like an external neutral. It's neither good nor bad. But if it's internally rooted in escape and avoidance, then it becomes evil. Similarly, if it's internally rooted in good and wanting to celebrate God's creation with the people that he has given you, amazing, it can be a beautiful thing. It comes back to that internal space, what's going going on in our souls. So what? What do we do with this emotion of envy and the reality in which we find ourselves? Thankfully, the psalm continues with the words, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, faith cures fretting. If we are trusting God and his promises, if we're focused and faithfully carrying out what he has given us to do in the place where he has called us, there is no room for the fretting and the envy of that first verse. Faith and trust cures fretting by crowding it out. Faith and trust cures that fretting and envy by crowding it out. So we know that the Psalms are a tool to train us in faithfulness. How do we trust in the Lord and do good today? What does it look like? David immediately fleshes it out by saying, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Dwelling in safety themselves speak to a victorious God and his presence. So David is writing this psalm to the people of God while they are located here in the promised land in the Shephelah Strip. I'm a geography grad, let me, let me nerd out for a minute here. <laughs> God has and always does places people in a place of significance. So they're living in the middle, they're dwelling in between the sea and the coast, the sea and the mountains. So they've wandered, they've come for years and years, they've wandered through these surrounding deserts and the Lord has led them faithfully time and time again to reach the promised land, to get to Jerusalem, to the place where he wants them. So for us here in the Pacific, surrounded by very aptly named peaceful waters, the, the desert has connotations of fear and nothingness and emptiness. It's an arid place, it's dry, it's, it's scary. It's not what we are familiar with. It is not a nice place. We speak of wilderness as this dry, unknown season that has no presence of God. But for the Israelites who have spent generations wandering these deserts, This is familiar to them. They know the desert. They know how God works in this space. They've followed him day and night. They understand an intimacy with the shepherd as they move through this space, as they are only reliant on the voice of God when there's nothing else around them. To an Israelite, especially one reading this psalm and using this psalm, the desert and the wilderness is a space of familiarity and intimacy with God. But... They faithfully leave the desert and move toward the coast. For an Israelite, the sea represents chaos. For us here, again, in the Pacific, it's, it's a space of connection and peace and calm. We love going to the beach. We love getting out on a boat. But for an Israelite who's familiar with the desert, you see it through scripture, right? You hear about storms at sea. You hear about the Leviathan in different poems. You hear about chaos and like this unknown power of the sea. It is a literary tool that that signifies chaos. 
which is the complete opposite for us. So I think it's an important distinction that they've left the familiar, familiarity of the desert, the, the comfortable, the, the way that God has worked, and they've followed God into this middle space that sits between the chaos of the sea and what they have known. It was also, this bit of the land was also, well, it still kind of is, the crossroads of the world. So it was like important trade and commerce routes went through this place to connect modern day Europe, Asia, and Africa. There was a lot happening here and that is exactly where God wanted his people, in the middle of it all, at the intersection of cultures as they bridged the familiar and the chaotic. In setting up shop here, they are being faithful to this verse, to trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture, no matter what is going on around them. No matter how uncomfortable it might be, they are faithful and they are dwelling in the midst of it all. And no matter when they see evil succeeding around them, they are there. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? This is the role of the church, of the people of God. As it was then, as it is now, we are to be in the middle, the middle of everything. As we heard last week in Psalm 24, David set up the tabernacle for the, the, in the middle of the people of God. So the tabernacle is most importantly a host for the presence of God for the people around. Tom Wright calls it the place where heaven and earth meet. Where the familiarity of the desert and the chaos of the culture around us connect in the middle. Thanks to the death and resurrection of Christ, we now, the church, the people of God, are that tabernacle. We are the temple of the living God. So where should we be located? Smack bang in the middle of everything. As the tabernacle was in the middle of the people of God and the people of God were in the middle of the cultures around them, so are we too to be rooted and grounded and dwelling in this land. This, this is how we do it. This is how we dwell in the land as we missionally move from the familiarity and comfort of this space here at the well, this community, and we engage the chaotic culture around us. Rather than envy the worldly success of those around us, we are to trust God to dwell in the land by engaging it, to deal with our envy by staying the course, as Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would not be removed from the chaotic culture and form a little holy huddle only hanging out with church people and staying all cool and fun in a circle, that we would instead leave that and engage the culture as Jesus did that we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind with Christ in the midst of it all. And this, this is the way of Christ. In January, we find ourselves in the, the church season called Epiphany, which follows Advent and Christmas, and it focuses and orients us around the person of Jesus as he came, as he is present here and now with us, the incarnate God. He left the glory and familiarity of heaven and he entered our chaotic, messy world through a, a human birth. He was vulnerable and he is present and he bridged heaven and earth together. And as we are formed in his likeness, we are to do the same. So what, what motivates us? What calls us to dwell in the land like this, bridging heaven and earth in the middle, here in Ototahi today? 
Friends, that is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus that one day all manner of things will be well, that God is already victorious, that sin and evil will not succeed in the end. We trust and we hope in this victory and this reality, this now and not yet kingdom of God. We trust that each of his promises will be fulfilled in time and they already are yes and amen as we were just singing. So then how? If that's what we're trusting in, how do we engage this culture day in and day out from the inside out? How do we faithfully dwell in the land trusting God and his victory without compromise? I would suggest four, four different postures that we can take in an engaging culture. So we can reject, we can assimilate, confront, and convert. So each of these have a time and place for our engagement with culture, which calls for high discernment. Like we can't see something and put all of these things to it. High discernment and time with the Lord. So I've fleshed out some examples for each of them. So firstly, we could reject the cultural escapism that calls us to find ourselves, to look inward and find yourself. So culture would say something like, invest in yourself, go and buy the latest, greatest mountain bike, <laughs> and escape the chaos of your work and family and find yourself in a few glorious hours in the hills. Don't, <laughs> don't hear what I'm not saying. Mountain biking itself is fine. Like the... <laughs> The, the trip to Raro, it's an, it's an external neutral. It's all related to our internal posture and motivation for doing that. If the intent behind it is a vehicle to escape and leave the culture in chaos, then that's, that is evil, the scripture calls it so. But if the intent is to enjoy creation and use the body that the Lord has, has filled in us, then that can be great. But we should be rejecting that idolization of self. Second, we can affirm and assimilate to the beauty here in Christchurch and also thanks to the rebuild, the way that the city has been redesigned to foster community and connection. This calls for discernment and identifying pieces of the way of Christ in the place around us. An example would be you could this week go for a walk between Riverside and the hospital along the Osakuro River and notice the, the placement, the intentional gift and placement of Ponamu in the, in the pavement as Ponami flows east to west. Pray for your city, enjoy the beauty that is here, assimilate to the good things that have been done around you. Thirdly, we, we have to confront things like racism whenever we see it inside and around us. Do the work, read some books, meditate and repent from your basic assumptions and how they shape your interactions with those who do not look like you. There is absolutely no place for injustice in the kingdom and way of Christ. Lastly, like Paul in Athens, as we read in Acts 17, we are called to convert by directing people's unnamed longings or that unknown God he speaks of to Jesus, to point them to the victory and the good news that we know to be true. So reject, assimilate, confront, and convert. Those are some helpful ways to dwell in the land and engage culture. But it's, this is hard. It is so much easier to just retreat from culture and stay in that holy huddle, go back to the familiarity of the desert. Or on the flip side, it is also easier to, to fully embrace the things that culture tells us, 
to buy into the idols that they sell us. But we are called to live in the middle, to be faithful and with the Lord in, in that tension. So, how are we doing? We tracking? It's making sense? Nice. So how do we reject fretting and envy? We trust in God. What are we trusting in? We are trusting that God is already victorious. His promises are and will be yes and amen. How do we dwell in the land as a, as a trust of God? We're in the center. And how do we do that faithfully? We engage culture while remaining separate from it. The psalm then calls us to be still before the Lord, waiting patiently for him. So, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. This section begins with the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The word damam, which is the word used for still here, is the same word that is used um, throughout scripture to speak of fallow ground. When God calls for the land to lie fallow, to rest, they use this word damam. It's used when the sun stands still for Joshua, when Aaron holds his peace with Moses, and when the friends of Job are sitting shiver with him. It is an embodied stillness that embraces and acknowledges our limits. It's this, this kind of stillness and silence can actually feel like nothingness, especially as a response. In, in early 2019, I was in Cambodia, beginning what I thought was going to be a good, good few years of missions overseas. But 2020 and COVID had other plans. <laughs> um, but I remember so vividly, I was sitting in a, in a hostel in, in Phnom Penh. It was so noisy. It was chaotic. There was lots of things happening, and it was hot. It was so humid and hot. And I was sitting on my, in a bunk bed in a hostel with my um, missionary team around me. When I read the news that one of the the youth boys here back in Christchurch. So before I left, I was running the youth group here at the well. Um, that one of them, 15-year-old boy, had been killed in a car chase. Um, it, was, it was hectic. I remember that, like, the intense shock gave way to, to a thick grief that kind of felt like the humid air around me um, and a, a sense of survivor's guilt that I wasn't able to be back here walking with the youth group and helping them process this, and also with the, the young guy's family. So I, I told my teammates, I told the, the people, and some of them offered prayers and words that felt, they were well-intentioned, but they felt pretty hollow. But one of my friends came up to me and held me in this silent hug. They didn't say a single word, and we just stood there in this hug. And that has stayed with me for, what, four, four years now. There was so much peace in that silence and stillness that acknowledged the inability to fix the situation that was present in the grief while acknowledging their limits to speak into it. Friends, stillness does this. It brings us face to face with our limits and our inability to fix things in our own strength. And it is this kind, at the same time, it is this kind of stillness that brings us to the place of our greatest agency and action, which is in prayer with God. That's where things happen. External physical stillness paves the way for internal stillness. That's how it works. 
Don't worry and don't give up as you lean into this practice. The first step to being good at something, as we know, is being bad at something. See the invitation here to train ourselves in faithfulness. This internal stillness and silence focuses us so completely on God such that all else is right-sized and grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This, is, this stillness is crucial to maintaining trust in God in the middle of the chaos around us where he has called us. We cannot faithfully engage culture if we are not consistently still before God. As Omri Nouwen says, this internal contemplative work is the external act of work and vice versa. So if we're, if we're still before the Lord then there is no space for the fretting and the envy that David talks about. You're not, the evil that is succeeding around you does not consume you because God is consuming everything. David gets this. He's nearing 70 in age and he understands the power and the, the presence of this stillness with God. In stillness, we, we know that we know that God is already victorious and he is redeeming all things to himself. Consistent stillness before God forms us into what um, Mark Sayers calls a non-anxious presence. That in the midst of the, the chaos and the hurried culture, we as the church, the people of God, would be formed into a peaceful, unhurried, unfazed gift to those around us. This, this is trusting God in the midst of our messy world. This is training and faithfulness. Over and over again, rejecting the sin that envies that which is void of God. Trusting in the Lord and doing good in the homes and workplaces, neighborhoods, cities, and the land, the Spino and Aotearoa that he has placed us in. Fighting for and practicing stillness before the Lord to do so. So I'd, I'd invite you to enter this practice um, in our prayer week coming up. So book online, book in a slot, and you can spend some or all of your time in the prayer room sitting in stillness with the Lord. You could sit, you could stand, you could lie down, though I would avoid lying down as I tried it this week and just fell asleep. <laughs> so some way that you're, you're physically engaged in stillness before God. So still yourself externally, physically, focusing on God, Perhaps you can memorize and repeat um, verse 7 of this psalm. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Repeat that until you begin to feel your soul get quiet and that the Lord is looming so large in your vision such that all else fades away. Don't stress it, don't force it. As Thomas Merton says, see each distracting thought that comes, just let them float past like a river and see them as invitations to return to the presence and person of Jesus. The, the point of stillness is not stillness. The point of stillness is God, as it is with each of these practices. As we make Jesus the center of everything, nothing else matters. We trust in the redemption because we are being redeemed. Well, you could do the same as we, as we turn to take communion together. Come gather your elements from the front and then return to your seat. And before you receive the body and blood of Christ,
still yourself, look full in the face of Jesus and be with the one who left heaven to dwell in our messy, chaotic lives. That stillness, it deals with our internal world. It deals with our motivations so that we can engage in things like a holiday or mountain biking from a place of communion with God. It sorts out our internal, which then flows into how we live. There is beauty here, there is depth here, there is Jesus here. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. God, as we, as we sit before you in stillness, would you meet us? We thank you that you are faithful and that you are making us faithful. We trust the work that you are doing and we, we follow you into that still, silent place. Would you be with us even more this morning? Amen. Amen.